a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 94 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. They can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like a Vong coral seed deep in Lord Crayon himself, the EU guru, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Ah, to be compared to what amounts to an alien STD. How lovely, folks. Now, <laughs> um... Yeah, good to be back. We're actually talking about uh, another of my favorite arcs from a favorite series this time, which should be pretty cool, I think. Indeed. Uh, we're both excited about this one. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or those simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. Bottom line, you ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we ponder Dark Horse comic Star Wars Legacy, issues 14 through 19, Claws of the Dragon, by John Ostander and Jan Dersima. Great, great team, I'm here to say. Uh, now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just make sure you jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Before we get into this particular topic, I did want to take a second to pause and thank everybody out there uh, who sort of heeded the call to save the day in a lot of ways for my own situation. Um, if you've been just following the podcast and you haven't been following the Facebook page or anything, then you may not know. Um, basically, thanks to an emergency room visit that uh, my wife had to have uh, fairly recently, it's the one that I've mentioned on the show before, um, we are basically in the process now of facing down what is at least a $12,000 hospital bill with even more added on to that because there are other bills associated with it that aren't part of that one bigger bill. Um, and at this point, the hospital's basically said, yeah, you got about a year to pay this off, so you've got about payments of, you know, a good $900 or $1,000 a month, which is literally impossible given our particular situation. So we're in the process now of filing paperwork and stuff like that for financial assistance through the hospital, which I don't know if they will, you know, accept or not because uh, uh, we are recently married. My income factors into it, even though most of mine goes right out the door for bills because almost none of Jody's does. Um, it just kind of put us in a tough spot. And after a married couple, uh, part of the fan audio community out there um, who I've been friends with for years, stepped up and said, you know what, we essentially – uh, try to put aside part of our income every year as sort of a tithe. We want to do something to do something good for someone else. Um, here, let us help you and provide it a little bit of money, actually quite a bit of money, uh, to help in that situation. I got to talking and asked uh, for some opinions on the Facebook page for the Star Wars Timeline Gold and for this show about what people would think if I were to put up essentially the idea of, hey, if you want to help out, here's a way to help out and put a, a like a PayPal address or something up on the web page or up on the Facebook pages. And I wasn't really quite sure about it simply because 
this is not a hobby that I've ever done looking to ask for something from anyone. Um, it's just sort of not been my thing. I've usually been the one on the side of helping others, whether it's a friend of mine and, and dropping almost $1,000 to help get him out of jail on a DUI, uh, whether it was helping a friend a few years ago uh, look at her birth parents. It's usually me putting forth money to help others instead of the other way around. Um, but I was finally talked into it, and I posted a message essentially onto the Facebook page for the show and for the Timeline Gold, basically saying, look, um, you know, we don't ask for any money for the show. We don't ask for anything like that as compensation for the timeline. It's just something that we do as a labor of love. But if you've ever wanted a chance to give back, here's how to do it. And I put out my PayPal address, which is Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com, and basically said, if you want to help, here's a way to help. And I laid out the entire situation about how screwy um, the medical bill uh, torrent has been recently. And I didn't really expect much to come out of it. I expect it to be one of those things where, you know, I put it out and I was like, hey, you know, whatever. Um, and within less than a week, the community surrounding the timeline, the community surrounding this show have managed to uh, basically cobble together um, almost $900 um, to help us out in this process. And I nice. could not be more grateful. I mean, this is a handful of people, um, sometimes as little as five bucks. Some of them have given as much as, as over a couple hundred. It's just been one of these things where people have, I guess, seen a need to help and seen an opportunity. And I, I guess we've built that camaraderie over the years where, you know, fans help other fans anyway. But to be on the receiving end of that has been very humbling, to say the least. It's been very shocking almost. Uh, it, it's one of those few times I'm driven speechless by anything. Obviously, you can tell I've thought about this enough that I'm, I've got my ideas of what I want to say here as opposed to just kind of sitting here numb and just shocked by it all. Um, it is still up there for those who would also want to help. It's Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com. I've got uh, the information on the Facebook page and whatnot, but I, I'm deeply grateful to those who have stepped up to help. We are trying our best to stay positive through all of this, and that much help coming in from so many people has really been if nothing else, is absolutely uplifted our spirits to know that there are enough people out there who are, you know, hoping for us, praying for us, as the case may be, to get through this huge, difficult point. Um, now that she's finally working, and and we're just sort of trying to 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 fix up everything, waiting until we can finally get her some insurance starting on January first. Um, but a big thank you definitely goes out to everybody, including, and I would say that this is a shock to me, and I don't even think Mark knows this yet. Um, one of the people who stepped up to help uh, because he's listened to our podcast for so long and has been a, a fan of it is the person that I have referred to in the past as the troll. This is an individual who for a while there, anytime I would be online, anytime I had a Facebook page set up or a new show or anything like that, he would sort of pop up and start something. Um, and it had been a while since you know, I heard from him. I didn't know if he was still out there or not. I didn't know if he was still listening or if he was still listening. You know, was he... You know, not popping up because he didn't feel like it. Had there been sort of a, a change of heart, or is it maybe just kind of like I was? I mean, for a long time, I was kind of a, a real putz when I was online fairly early on until I finally, I guess, you know, got over that and, and took a much more positive approach to fandom and whatnot. But um, of all people, having that person step up and say, look, you know, I want to help. Here's a way to do it, and thanks for the podcasts and such. It, it definitely... I mean, as much as everything else with this really kind of took me back saying, wow, you know, fandom is something very different. Fandom is something very special. Even those who disagree at times uh, or clash at times, 
when it comes down to it, we are all that one community, and and I don't know, this just very much just drove it home for me. So thank you to everyone, including uh, I won't say him by name here, but but including uh, that one individual that I certainly have not seen eye to eye with so much in the past. It has been uh, a humbling experience, and I'm hoping that uh, that we can continue delivering content that makes you feel as though uh, uh, this community. Uh, is not taken for granted that we are doing everything we can to try to deliver as, as cool a stuff to you guys as possible, which I think you'll definitely agree with in the near future when we're able to announce something big that's coming, but uh, not something that we can talk about just yet. But uh, suffice to say, Mark and I will be involved in something interesting in the very near future. I, I like teasers. That, that, that's uh, almost like a spoiler teaser trailer release. You know, just to keep it real here for a minute, I mean, uh, I, I know – you know, positions you're in right now when uh, I lost my job with Kodak, uh, I got laid off. But my son got uh, fell off the playground equipment and busted his lip open real bad. We thought we were going to have to get stitches, had to go into the ER because of the time of the day it was and all that. And that one medical bill, man, that just domino affected us and put us in the end where we ended up falling behind on the mortgage payment and all this other stuff while we were trying to get the, you know, the house refinanced while the company that had the loan switched to Bank of America or yeah Bank of America and then while we were trying to deal with them they were like oh you got to deal with the other company the other companies now you got to deal with them and you know it snowballed out of control all because that first you know five seven hundred dollar doctor bill man I mean it just so quickly mounts up you know it, it'll take a person out because not many people have you know five seven hundred dollars to a thousand dollars sitting off in a savings account for that I mean we all should but I mean rarely do do those of us uh, who who have families, I would think, uh, can can afford to save that much? I mean, I'm usually too busy trying to you know clothe and keep the kids happy. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and it's it's I guess with the medical stuff, it's sort of a it's a domino effect. You know, it's because whatever you do has a follow up, which has a follow up, which has a follow up. We are still looking ahead. I mean, it'll be later this month when we finally find out whether one of the things they found on that ER visit is going to require laparoscopic surgery or not. Um, which, if it happens, is probably going to have to happen before January 1st, which means another torrent of this stuff. Um, fortunately, most of the places that we deal with, basically, they're, they're willing to work with you and set up you know, monthly type of things, monthly payments or whatever. But for whatever reason, the, the big one, the hospital bill um, from the ER, they're basically making the argument. And I don't honestly know if this is truthful, what they said. Their claim is that because of the Obamacare legislation... They're required now that they have to get payment on an ER bill within one year. I think that's crap because I've studied the living crap out of the Obamacare bill, and I don't see anything with that at all in it. Unless this is just the, the hospital saying, well, because of this, we have changed our policy, and mm -hmm. that's what our policy is. Because that certainly doesn't, doesn't fit with anything that I saw um, when studying that legislation. But anyway, so if I say, you know, mm -hmm. seriousness somewhat over with, I just want to say thanks to everybody because this has been a very trying time and this has been something that's really uplifted my spirits. And also, I'd have to say thanks to my friend James out there. Um, as I'm, as I collected all these Star Wars home video things and I've got those other new ones that were pre-ordered and pre-paid before any of this stuff happened, um, coming in the near future, uh, I had collected the VHS stuff and the DVD stuff and the Blu-ray stuff and whatever for Star Wars, and there came a point where a friend of mine said that he had the special edition trilogy on Laserdisc and was willing to sell it to me for, you know, 50, 60 bucks, whatever it might have been. 
Um, but then we kind of lost touch a little bit because he was looking for them. He hadn't found them yet. He just knew he had them somewhere. And sure enough, just about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he finds them. And rather than saying here, so, you know, okay, here's what I want for them. They just show up in my mail saying, hey, I've got no use for them. Consider it a gift. This is this is a heck of a community um, that we are part of out there. And I, I can only hope that as we get towards Rebels in Episode 7, the community will become even stronger as opposed to being as divided as many of us fear it might become by all those changes coming up in the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that aside, even though changes are coming, there is one direction of the Star Wars expanded universe that's continuing, and that's the Legacy era. And, you know, we've already talked about it once before. We just got done talking about Legacy Volume 2 in our last few episodes. Uh, but the interesting thing about this one is is I, I enjoyed this one the most when it comes to my arcs overall arcs i thought that this arc claws of the dragon had a lot of really cool tie-ins with a lot of different eras a lot of characters that i've come to love uh classic characters as well as others and even random characters that i would not have expected to pop up uh it was a lot of cool stuff like that going on in this legacy claw of the dragon had really cool themes prominent themes that have always been around since the classic trilogy you know the light side the dark side you know, falling to the dark side, serving a dark master, all the classic things that I've come to love. And like I said, you know, I've always been a fan of the New Jedi Order, and we finally get some really strong tie-ins, be it some of them that may not have sat so well with me, but that's not so much the fault of this story arc, but it's more the fault of, of where the overall continuity went with certain characters like Jason Solo and, and Verger and things like that. But we'll get into that more as we get deeper into the spoilers. Uh, art, you know, I love the styling. Uh, after our last few episodes, I, you know, we've been kind of a little more critical on the art. So I was kind of looking over the stuff by Jan a little more critical this time around. And I mean, I could see that even in this style that there are a couple times where, where some of the scarring and stuff based on where a character is drawn in the background. If they're up front, there's a lot of scars. If they kind of fall four or five feet back away, that detail drops off. Little things like that that I may not have noticed my first time around. But again, you know, John and Jan are still my dream team. So uh, this is a very solid comic. Uh, very fun one. I don't necessarily... I think you have to have read everything that comes before or after it to get as much fulfillment out of it as I get, knowing what comes before and after it. But this one is probably up there with the Darth Plagueis in, in terms of good comic reads. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite arcs of this series, and listeners to this show and to the EU Review in the past know that this is my favorite Star Wars comic series of all time. There's this, and then it's Tales of the Jedi as a very, very close second. Um... This is where all the threads finally start to be pulled together. All the things laid out in that first 13 issues finally get pulled together. We finally get to learn who Darth Crate is. We get to see characters come back that we had seen previously and wanted to know more about. And we really finally bring Cade's storyline and that of Crate into the same place. And this could have been, you know, the big climax point and then that was it. Could have been very much like uh, Vindication in Knights of the Old Republic, and then had mm -hmm. it sort of peter out afterwards with a story that was solid, but didn't feel like it ever quite reached the same height of drama as that point. Instead, what we get here is a big sort of climactic uh, game-changer type of moment that winds up sending us off into a slightly new direction as we head towards uh, you know, the, the Vector crossover, which will then change things and head towards the finale, which heads towards Legacy War. Uh, it definitely feels like a lot of planning out. As far as art goes, I think you're right. This is some of the better art that we've seen. Um, it does have its moments of, uh, but I think that is more because of how strong some of the art is. The weaker art in this isn't nearly as weak as anything that we saw in some of the better art 
and some of the recent comics that we've talked about. This one, uh, if there's one thing that gets me about the artwork in Claws of the Dragon, is that sometimes um, it goes from looking like the standard Jandersima, you know, comic-style art to almost looking painted. Like, we go from, I guess it's on the, let's see, two, four, six. The sixth page of the first issue, there's a shot of Cade in the bottom left corner where he says, nice, with, nice work, Dad. Yeah, nice work, ah. Dad. And it yeah. looks almost painted, um, like like portrait-type painting. And I like know it that could sometimes, have been on a galaxy card or something like that. Like, they had, like, dual purpose for it. Right. Like, I, I'm wondering if what we're getting here is, you know, those times where there are more specific photo references used for character drawing as opposed to others. Um, but, yeah, this is some of the best art that we see in the series. And at the time, uh, I think still today in many ways, some of the best art that we saw in uh, Star Wars for this particular era. Definitely one to check out. I'm not sure that I would say that you could read it, though, without what came before or what came after. I think this is so important. This is kind of like The Empire Strikes Back. Like... If you don't have A New Hope and Return of the Jedi, I'm not sure how much enjoyment someone just seeing Empire Strikes Back in a vacuum with no other Star Wars knowledge will get out of the film, or if they will get the full oomph out of the film they're supposed to get um, without having already been introduced to the characters previously and knowing where some of the stuff might be going with uh, Return of the Jedi later. This is very much an integral part of a much broader story. Well, and I see where you're coming for that. I think for me, when I say, you know, it'd be a fun place to jump in, it's in the aspect of how I took on the EU. I remember when I read the books, it was like, whoa, wait, there's more stuff out here. And in that regard, it's like there are a lot of little subtle nods to things that you know of, you know, Skywalkers and heirs. And, and you know, they, they mentioned Cadus as a Skywalker heir, even though he's technically a solo, but they don't point that out. So it's like it would. I don't know. For me, I, I would think it would raise enough questions that it make you want to know more. I guess that's the way I should have probably described it. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning beyond ascension of all ages, because here we go. So we start with issue number 14. This is another six-issue story arc at this point. And we begin with uh, Darth Crate and Darth Weirlock III, uh, mainly getting Weirlock's thoughts on how he is essentially the one who is the gatekeeper to Crate. He's the one who uh, takes care of things in Crate's absence when Crate is in stasis. And it reminds us again of how there's this Yuzhan Vong growth of some kind, uh, or, or some kinds, plural, within Crate that is slowly consuming him, which is the whole point of why Crate wants Cade in the first place. He wants Cade to use that dark side healing power that he has seen him use and use that on Crate himself to heal him from these Vong growths. Um, Claws of the Dragon is essentially about that uh, goal of Crate's and the plot surrounding what is Cade going to do when faced with this and what are his friends going to do when faced with the idea that he could fall into Sith hands. Which brings us into a pretty cool chase sequence. Um, we know, if we're, if we're putting things together mentally here, that we have a brother and sister, at least a half-brother and half-sister, that have not met in person yet. Um, we know, thanks to some previous issues of this series, that Cade Skywalker's father is Cole Skywalker, but his mother is Morrigan Cord, a.k.a. Nina Calixta. We also know thanks to this arc and some mentions that I think it was the number zero issue and such, that Nina Calixta has a daughter, uh, Gun Gunner Yeg, with Moth Yeg. 
um, another of these imperial leadership positions here. So we open up with the TIE fighters or the uh, – uh, what do they call these new TIE fighters? Predators, I guess. Yeah. Um, these predators chasing down the Minoc as Cade and R2-D2 make their way to Coruscant so that he can infiltrate the Sith Temple trying to go save uh, Hosk, the guy that it was that he basically let get captured and let get turned over to the Sith in order to protect himself uh, and his identity. Uh, we see him pursued by Gunner's squadron. And I thought that was kind the of a skull cool, squadron, right? A nice ripoff of Robotech. Um, I thought that made for a cool moment to introduce those characters to each other in that form of combat, so that they can be set up as adversaries when they finally do meet face to face much later. I of all the different Imperials, they could very easily have made this just a bunch of generic pilots. Mm -hmm. Instead, they made sure that it was Gunner who was the one chasing him down, who eventually loses Cade. Um, during that pursuit. I thought that was a nice touch. There were, there were a lot of nice touches with that chase alone. I mean, I, there's some minor little details that I pick up on. You know, I mean, as they're diving deeper, you start to see uh, slugs, granite slugs on the side of the, the building. And Coruscant, uh, you know, it was taken over by the Vong. You see Vong forming in the next couple ish uh, pages and stuff. But something I always thought was interesting was that the Predators, uh, you know, Gunners got the classic tie lens uh glass front but the other ones have these weird slit vertical lines and like later when when they lose the ship those lines and, and even gunners kind of become like spotlight beams that shoot out from it which i thought was interesting you know different different thought on the technology that i i never thought about before i never could never really even crossed my mind so it was something that when i saw it i was like oh that's kind of interesting okay i wonder how that works you know uh, but I thought it was funny. I mean, R2's not really in this much, and he's really got like a panel where he's upside down as they're flipping and diving. And Cade, you know, he's like, oh, stop being such a big baby, R2. Grow some ball bearings. I, just, I get that the, that that kind of stuff is, is laid on pretty thick at times, but I think it's funny. I, I enjoyed how Cade ribs him. I, I find there's a lot of classic architects in this arc, especially. It's kind of like this is for Cade Skywalker what Dark Empire was for Luke Skywalker. Um, you know, and... His mom kind of serves as the Vader in a sense where, you know, she was like on the Jedi side at one point, but she's also working for the Empire, but she's also doing her own kind of thing. Like, you don't really know what's going on with her. By the end of the issue, you know, it does kind of this is the one where you finally get, oh, boy, there this is it's all laid out there. I mean, it's flat out. They You watch her change and go from one character to the other. And I mean, yeah, it was alluded to in number zero. But if you never got number zero, this is the moment where that finally becomes apparent to you by the end of this issue. And I, I still find that that character's progression and what's driving that character doesn't quite make sense to me, even on the rereads. I'm still like, why? You know, you know it's like. Was she always Morgan Cord first? Was she always Nyx? What's been the driving factor if she was Nyx or Nixia or whatever her name is? Why did she become Morgan Cord for a while, have Cade, and then go back and then decide to leave, you know, Yage for Moral, Morish or whatever his name is? Like, the, her driving purpose really makes no sense. So I, I have a hard time with that. That's how I think the one drawback is, is what's really driving her. It, it adds to mystery because I definitely want to know, but. Even on the reread, I'm still not finding many answers when it comes to her character. Yeah, it's always struck me that it seems like Morgan Cord was who she really is, and the persona she adopts is Calixta. But I'm not sure, you know, there are times when it leans one way, times when it leans the other. But the fact that they talk about Morgan Cord at least 20 years ago when she's active uh, in order to give birth 
to Cade at one point kind of makes me think that Calixta must have come in a little bit later, but it can't be all that much later um, because she has to be able to rise through the ranks unless just her thing was constantly trying to play both sides of it, you know, sort of trying to be... It's sort of like she's trying to be sort of the Leia or the Padme, the action hero woman on the one hand and a leader on the other. Only in that case, instead of being able to do both as the same person, she creates this alternate persona, whichever one it happens to be, um, to be able to do that. Well, I keep getting a dark vibe from her. I mean, like, like, okay, she's the one that brought the Sith into the Empire before the Sith betrayed everyone. And it almost seems like it's all going according to her plan. And yet there's also the question of what's the age gap between Cade and Gunner? I mean, you know, are we talking five years here, a year, two years? I mean, I mean, I guess that also gets to that aspect of how fast she rose to power because it, you get the impression as this, you know, I think it's by the time we get to the next issue or the one after that where we find out, you know, that, that she has, as Calixa has left Yage to go with Morlish so she could continue her advancing through the ranks of the Empire. So... It seems like there's some selfishness driving her, but you really don't get a clear sense of what her motives are all the way through it. Yeah, she's a little bit of the uh, sleep in her way to the top or use sex as a way to get an advantage type of character, which is, in this case, is used as a form of power for the character, whereas, you know, a lot of times we see that used and overused in the sexualization of female characters as simply part of who they are. Because they happen to be female, they are this. In this case, at least, you know, when she's doing it, it is with some broader purpose. It's used as manipulation, not just because she's kind of hoey, because, well, she's a female and we don't know what else to do with her as writers. And I would credit, I think, uh, probably Jan Dersima's influence in the story um, to that. Now, yeah. from the standpoint of where we go from here, we get them stopping. Um, we get to see Cade as he meets with Jewel. And Jewel is a hut. Jewel is a freakish hut. Um, mm -hmm. A hut with a bikini top. <laughs> a hut with these weird gauntlets. A strange jeweled eye patch wearing eyeshadow. Uh, Jewel was the most flamboyant hut I had ever seen until a year later when we got Zero. Yeah, if Zero is kind of leaning towards the homosexual male end of Huts, I would say Jewel is kind of the transgender side or the drag queen side. <laughs> yeah, they're definitely playing off of, of other look stereotypes that could be drawn upon. Um, but suffice to say, upon meeting with Jewel and basically saying, you know, here's some information for the Minoc, here's what happens if Jiraiya and Deliah show up and need the ship and everything, pass this along... See, and uh, I like the way that played out because in the scene before he leaves, you see him recording with R2. Right. And his narrative continues all the way through that to where we get to the end where, you know, it's being played back to the other crew members, which I thought was a, the way they played that throughout this arc was well done. And while he's there, he meets up with a couple of the other characters we haven't seen in a bit. Uh, we've heard them mentioned, I believe it is, earlier in the series. Uh, that is Key and Chak. And I was excited, I remember when Chak showed up, because Chak had shown up in The Hidden Enemy in the pages of Republic. And this is a character who, because he's a Wookiee, has an incredibly long lifespan, so he's kind of like A.G. in The New Legacy, and that he's someone who can connect these eras together. And here he shows up, we know he's a member of the Klatovat Guild, he's someone who has access to all these special hyperspace lanes and everything. Um... So aside from just that clone, that, that tie back to the Clone Wars, we've actually got a situation here where we sort of feel as though um, he's going to be able to be a bigger part of the story because they want their ship back. They'd gotten the ship and essentially rented it 
to uh, Jiraiya and Delia earlier in the storyline, and now that, uh, and they don't mention it here, but now that those two have been captured in a previous arc, um, the ship has been taken into custody as well. So in a sense, they think of, of Cade as the one responsible for it, when it's really not Cade who it is that, you know, needs to be able to replace a ship for them or help them get their ship back. It's actually Jiraiya and Delia um, who are currently in custody. I thought that was kind of a good way to introduce them here. They're going to play more of a role in the rescue later, but in order to introduce them early on, instead of having them just immediately confront Delia and Jiraiya, which can only happen after they themselves get freed, um, mm -hmm. they introduce them again really quick here in this first issue of the arc to make sure that they, they are someone that we're keeping in mind. As oh, and it also serves it also serves to point out the fact that Cade and, and the trio have been split up. I mean, you know, it's like Cade doesn't care. He's just like, you know, I'm not with them anymore. It doesn't matter what the heck they owe you. You know, I don't care. And that also gives you some insight to his personality as well, which, you know, we've known for a while now with what he did with the boss and Jedi Hosk. It's like, OK, well, you know, he's quick to sell anyone down the river if it serves him, which is a prevalent moment for you as you go into the series, because as we progressively go farther he's going to get tempted with learning the ways of the dark side and you see just how quick and easy it is for him to turn his back on everything he's known so you know you comply this with the fact that he's got a drug addiction it's like Kate's a character that really you could expect to see anything happen from him that's right and as he leaves and we very briefly find out uh, uh or get to see a little bit of the family connection between uh uh Yeg and uh, Gunner, you know, basically him dressing her down and saying, you know, well, we're going to eat dinner soon, blah, blah, blah. Um, we get that quick moment there with them to remind us about the character connection and set up uh, conversations to come later. And we finally see Cade undertake his actual mission, breaking into the Jedi Temple that is now the Sith Temple to save Hosk Trailies, whom he had turned over. Um, we get a little bit of conversation between the two about, you know, what is it that Cade is looking for? Is he looking for forgiveness? Is he looking for healing the way that Hosk says? Um, is he basically just looking to make sure that no one ever dies for him again, which is what Cade claims, uh, but they're not really able to do a whole lot about it because, of course, they have been sensed on the way by Darth Crate way back on the first page of the issue, and it is actually Darth Talon and Darth Nil there waiting um, for him as he arrives. So we get to see a brief battle, uh, which begins with Hoss being force-pushed, apparently, and then Talon attacking uh, Cade with a left-handed lightsaber grip and apparently trying to stick her boobs in his face, um, at least based on the way that that particular panel is drawn, and they fight ever so briefly, but it gives us a moment of, uh, to, to get, to let Cade get captured when Nil comes in and basically just starts force choking him to, to incapacitate him, and we get to at least briefly see Cade go all Sith-eyed. And that is one of those ongoing themes here, this idea that he is going more and more Sith, and it's not just him it's kind of like Luke in Dark Empire, and you made that, that comparison earlier. Luke in Dark Empire has that whole, I'm going to become Sith, I'm going to defeat the dark side from within. Same thing Ulick Keldroma tries to do back in Tales of the Jedi. But both of those were before we knew anything about this concept of so-called Sith eyes that we wind up getting later. We see uh, Darth Maul with those Sith eyes and have no reason to believe that it's anything but Darth Maul until we finally get in Episode 3, oh look, there's Anakin with the Sith eyes. That must be a Sith thing. So now we get the Sith eyes showing up to show us that this is not just Cade pretending to go to the dark side. He is not feigning this. He is allowing himself kind of like, um, you know, sort of a sliding scale of dark and light to every so often let his anger take him far enough to the dark side to at least get the Sith eyes thing 
going on, which well, it's you know, like he doesn't even care at all. I mean, yeah. it's like he he recognizes that there's that sliding scale, but he's like, out of hell with it. You know, you can take that scale and stuff it. I'm going to do what I want. He's like, Cartman, I do what I want. Which, of course, is part of why we can assume that that's why uh, Wolf Sazen back on Osis is able to sense this impending doom going on with Cade. The fact that Cade is apparently leaning towards the dark side, because that way we know that this was not just an act of violence, this is an act of the dark side as he does so. And it's that concern that we leave issue one with, moving into issue number two of this story, or issue number 15 of the broader story arc. Now, really quick before we leave it, I wanted to point out, uh, there's a panel there as Cade's been knocked out, and Nil is talking to Talon. There's a dagger in the corner. The thing is huge, man. Just beastly size. Can't believe how big it gets. Plus, you also can see the Bothan has been tossed way in the corner. I just those little attentions to detail. I mean, granted, they don't have to put detail to the art, but the characters there and they know all the locations of all the action that happened. I really like that. There's also a panel where you know when you mentioned Cade's eyes. He's pointing the lightsaber down at Darth Talon. He's like, you think you can take me now? And the panel, she's got her fist, her left fist is back, and she's like all angry, and the lightsaber's pointing her face. Really cool panels. There are a lot of really cool moments in this, uh, the art, where it really stands out, where you'll see a lot of people will take an image here or there and crop in on it, make it their avatar. I mean, that's that's some of the stuff I really enjoy about you know good comic art, is when it's something that you see it popping up, not just on the comic, but all around the web, because it's just so beautiful. Everybody wants to have it as their profile page. That brings us to issue 15. Uh, we start with basically the Sith in the form of Darth Malady uh, passing along an order from Darth Krayt that the Imperials are to stop looking for Cade Skywalker, which of course tells them, oh, he must have already been found. Now we need to know what to do next. And we get to hear more of them bickering over, you know, just what is it that the Sith want, how they have less power now than they did under Rowan Fell, and what are they going to do about it? Uh, which leads is going to lead Morlish into essentially deciding to send Morrigan Cord um, to try to find out what's going on, to try to find Skywalker for them. Um, yeah. Someone who, at Morrigan Cord, because she is Nina Calixta, is someone that Nina has always been the contact person with, but we'll find that this time he actually, you know, he sort of puts that in jeopardy by Morlish being the one to insist that it be him that meet with her, not Nina this time around, which makes a lot of sense given the control freak that Morlish tends to be, even though it seems mm -hmm. like the power behind the throne is actually Nina. Um, speaking of Nina, we get to see her, see her have a brief, contentious, partial meal, I guess you could call it, um, with Rolf Yeg and Gunner at dinner, uh, in which she's able to confirm from Gunner that it does look like the Minoc really was the ship that they were chasing, which means that he really is, Cade really is somewhere on Coruscant at this point. But we get that beginning of the tension between them. And we know that they're a family. And we know that they're apart, obviously, Rolf and Nina. But we have little to go on as far as like the actual relationship dynamic within the that three, the, the trio, including the daughter. And now we essentially well, love... get the idea that she, well, she's close to her father, even if he's the one berating her at times and to, to not show favoritism. But it's the mother that she really has all this negativity against, thinking in terms of her mother essentially abandoning her and her father uh, years before. Which, again, goes back to that whole, well, okay, so time-wise, does she abandon the father, become Morgan Cord for a while, and that's when she has Cade? Or is it the other way around? How exactly is it that the timeline works with these two kids? And I don't think we've ever gotten an age for Gunn Yeg to be able to actually tell for sure. At this point, I'm yeah. assuming Gunn is at least a tiny bit older than Cade is. 
Well, there was really, you mentioned, yeah, what she said, how she harbors the bitterness there. You know, she goes, family, we were never a family mother. Even before you took up with Veed. Dad, what did you see in such a nasty old rancor? And she keeps going on, you know, and then later she goes, uh, you know, her mom's like, well, what wasn't included? Oh, she's talking about the one report. And she's like, that's why Morlish Veed is the high moff and you aren't. Yes, everyone knows you're Admiral Veed's brain mother, and we all know what he gives you in return. It's like, oh, man, there is some serious anger there. Uh, but going back to the scene before it with the council, the, the other thing that I liked how that served is you not only see how they're bickering in and of it, but you also could see how the, uh, what is it, the uh, Imperial Mission, you know, how they're kind of not trusted within the group. You've also got uh, Felara or Falur, whatever his name is, the Chiss, uh, Grand Moff or whatever he is on the council and so you got that whole aspect of the Empire of the Hand although they're not actually mentioned but it, it does kind of bring that in of oh the Chists are here they got their own thing going on and they have a hand in helping Rone fell even though they're still part of the Empire under the under uh, Krayat right now so it was kind of interesting how that worked out as well but yeah the, the whole family dynamic and and the, the part that always struck me weird about the about the Nyak's character Morgan Cord was that when she's Naya, she, she's got this very gothic kind of unattractiveness to her, almost kind of like uh, cadaver, cadaver, yeah, cadaverous, e- eon flux, like the way that character kind of looked. But yet, when she's Morgan Cord, there's like this Dolly Parton chest action, and they got her all modeled out, and she's got the perky lips. It's like, it's like okay, obviously that's the aspect. I, I keep going back to which one was the dominant personality. Was Morgan Cord just created to seduce Cole Skywalker, or or do Imperial men all like this kind of gothic lady? I mean, I don't, I don't get that part. As much as I would like to know for sure which came first, the uh, the bounty hunter or the moth, part of me does kind of like that ambiguity. Um, it, it reminds me, I just actually went back this weekend and rewatched the director's cut, the three-hour director's cut of Watchmen. And there's this interesting uh, dynamic with the character of Rorschach in that his face without the mask is not what he thinks of as his face. He thinks of his mask as his face because it's only while wearing that that he can do what he feels he is compelled to do. And that's sort of what, what we get here. There's that question of, you know, which one is the mask or are they all simply masks in a lot of ways, which I think is something else that, uh, is dealt with later. If I remember right, uh, uh, we will see several storylines in different Star Wars comics. I'm not. Sh- I don't remember one in Legacy off the top of my head. Um, dealing with masks, the question of you know mask disguise personas and that sort of thing, um, which works or like well. Like how Revenge of the Sith really played with it with Palpatine. I mean, I know there for a long time it was a big question of did Palpatine have a physical mask he was wearing, some kind of alchemy mask, this that or the other thing. Although Darth Plagueis actually. I don't know if it was Darth Plagueis or if it was uh, Book of Sith. One of the two actually had Palpatine talk about that, and they they pretty much ruled out that, no, he never had a mask. It was actually Mace deforming him. The next scene, though, I like how, how it starts out from Cade's eyes. And it's, it's him looking. <laughs> he sees Malady. He sees the needles. They're all kind of warped and psychedelic-like. I mean, it's like, whoa. The first time I saw it, though, because the way the panel blurs in on one half and then has a crisp line on the other, I thought it was part of the paneling or like maybe like she had some kind of mystical portal up above his head. She was able to see what was in his mind or something. And I was like, oh, it's a fadeaway. Okay. Well, I do have to say... Of all the things they could use to try to break Cade, using the drug he uses himself as the means of doing it 
probably not the smartest tactic because she's. Oh, that's all. That's all the exile talk. Colonna is? Yeah, it, it says, it says uh, interesting, despite a full day of injections, your body keeps purging itself of the Ixital Salona. That is the primary ingredient in Death Sticks, which is why he says, you know, you're just getting inferior product. Maybe you need a, a better supplier. You know, I can get you some quality ones. He's like, I supply them. He's like, yeah, well, your stuff sucks. Yours is like, <laughs> if, if you're trying to give me cocaine, apparently all you're giving me is the powdered sugar from donuts right now, my friend. But of <laughs> all the things to try to use to break him... Trying to dose him up on the same thing he uses recreationally as a means of cutting out the force, probably not the best thing. Although, you could make the argument that if they know this about Kate already, this could very much be a test of what he can do in terms of purging his body. Because um, we do have Crate saying that uh, this notes here that because Kate is dipping into the dark side and whatnot, a Sith trait... To be able to purge his body like that, he's realizing that there are limitations to Jedi teachings. Maybe this is all essentially a test, but if it's not, boy, you guys picked the wrong thing to shoot this guy up with. Well, and it's interesting, too, because Malady, she goes, she goes, no, you use the Force to purge yourself, bending it to your will, like a Sith. And it's interesting because, you know, like you said, Crate points out that the Jedi had limitations, but at the same time, so do Sith. It's like, while he is bending the force to his own desires he's using those desires to heal i mean as far as i'm aware off the top of my head he is the only character that's able to heal while using the dark side i mean but basically it gets around it because he's preventing death and therefore it's still a dark trait but he borders that line when he's not crossing over with someone who's actually dying you know when it's just somebody that's hurt or stuff then he's actually healing. I mean, granted, he does create pain in a sense to do it. So it's it's a definite unique way of coming at it. And I like the way that they also they leave that open. I mean, you know, I, I'm always pointing out that I like things to be spelled out and clear. But I do like I like mystery involved. I like it when they dole out a little bit of crumbs to go with it. But, you know, when I get no crumbs, that's when I get really mistakenly angry. Yeah, I think in this case, I, I the fact that he's able to heal using the dark side, it, it plays into that whole issue of of selfishness, of wanting this for himself, not for the other person. It's not so much that he's trying to heal them to heal them. He's healing them because he doesn't want to bear the loss of whoever it is. Uh, and they portray this later as kind of describing it as very much sort of a shatterpoint thing, a Mace Windu kind of thing. Someone who also touches yeah. the dark side sometimes with Vapod and whatnot, that he's essentially seeing the shatterpoints and has the ability to heal the, the cracks within the person, so to speak, viewing it in a shatter point type of sense, but could also wind up using that to destroy someone. Um, yeah, as he put it, ex make them explode. It's like, oh, snap. Right, which which he gets a chance to to do here as far as the healing aspect, because as we saw, Jiraiya and Delia were kidnapped in a previous issue, and now uh, they are brought before Cade with Yuzhan Von Groth's inside them, uh, our first shot being something out of, I think, a 1970s exploitation film. Um, the dreadlocked black guy with no shirt in the background and the woman in front in bondage, um, doing that whole leaning forward like, like, oh, please, kind of like a, 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 almost a praying hands. I, I don't know, just if you look at the first <laughs> image when they bring in Jiraiya, Delia, and they're standing next to Talon, tell me that that image doesn't scream 1970s exploitation film. I'm just saying. No, it, it does. I mean, and from the in-universe standpoint, it's obviously because she's a Zoltron. I mean, she just exudes that. So. I, I guess. I don't know. Um, but, Even but, in torture. <laughs> Gotta they're, look they're, like I'm ready for the cover spread of the new magazine. Well, And what we learn, though, is this idea that um, 
by zapping them with dark side force lightning, it causes these growths to grow much more quickly. Um, fed dark energy, the seeds grow at an accelerated rate, which definitely explains Crate. In that, if these are the types of things inside his body, the more he uses the dark side, the more they will grow. That's why they're consuming him and why he needs Cade in the first place. They're not laying this out for us just saying, this is why I need you, sir. It's much more of a, okay, by seeing what's going on with these two, we understand what's going on inside Crate. And whether or not, you know, Cade can actually help Crate is sort of left up in the air until he is basically required here to draw upon the dark side uh, to a, an extreme degree to not only heal one of them, but heal both of them at the same time, um, which is something he didn't think he'd be capable of doing. And he does. Yeah, that was an interesting point. Both. You know, what, what's interesting, and I, I mean, I don't want to get too sexist or go off the mark here, but I am Mark, so I guess I got to go there. Why is it when the coral seeds are taking over, Delilah's chest is left completely alone to be just Dolly Parton-like in its own ness i mean it's like everywhere on her and and sin are both just like spiked out but right there it's still perfectly curved it's like i i, I only say this because the artist was a female so i mean like it can't possibly be uh it's aimed at boys thing right like i don't know maybe i shouldn't even question this i don't know but if it's everywhere but there i wouldn't want to be jiraiya trying to take a leak i'm just saying um <laughs> i certainly would not hope that a, a spiky Zeltron would follow the Zeltron nature and try to hook up with somebody anytime soon. Otherwise, we'll see someone with death by sentient porcupine. Um, anyway, uh, this proves that, yes, he's got these abilities. It does work on other people. It does work on a larger scale than Cade expected, which is when Crate essentially opens up. And, and this is something that made me look at Crate a little bit differently, because when we finally get to the end of this issue, we're going to find out who Crate actually is. And we get this moment where he's basically reasoning with Cade saying, look, you know, you're going to serve or you're going to die. And when Cade says, look, I'll stay, I'll listen, I'll even maybe reconsider your offer of learning the dark side if you let them go. And Crate is actually willing to do that as long as Cade gives his word. Uh, and, and he says he will give his word that they will go free. And they do. And I think that's something where... You know, it, it goes back to the fact of who Crate actually is. Um, the fact that he was once a Jedi means that while he may be Sith, he understands the meaning of certain aspects of honor. And while he doesn't use them all the time, yeah. there is a sense that he can can sort of fall back on them, if only to manipulate people. He can fall back on them. He hasn't lost that sense of uh, of dignity in that. I think that's something where a lot of Sith, like, say, Palpatine, I would not expect Palpatine to be someone with a sense of honor at any point that we see him. Um, yeah. But I'll let them go in, onto a planet they can never escape from. <laughs> yeah, we see that, I think, here with... Well, I mean, shoot. In that sense, then Spock's a Sith dropping Kirk on that planet back in <laughs> 2009. Um, but anyway. Um, well, you know, another thing about that moment that I like, it, it serves to, to continue the big three, in this case being, you know, Sin, Cade, and Delilah. Their character grows because after he says, you know, it's a bargain, Sin, he gets kind of really whiny. You got no right. I won't be owing you because he's all bent out of shape about the fact that Cade is a Jedi and has been lying to him about it. But Blue, on the other hand, is totally, you know, the classic, my boyfriend's being taken. Cade, no, better we all die than you go with them. And of course, you know, Cade's response to Sin after I won't be owing you nothing. He's like, deal's done. You owe me nothing. And his eyes are all Sith red. He's like, you can't owe the dead. 
I mean, which tells you, you know, that he's already considering himself a lost cause. There's nothing going to be taken over from here. He's going in here. He's going to make things right. And he's going to die trying. So, you know, you got all those little moments there as well, where it's like, boom, boom, boom. It's all just kind of locking in. But something I wanted to ask you real quick, though, is when Cade does the healing power, you know, they, they draw it like it's like forced lightning that engulfs his body. Is that how you interpret it? Or do you consider it more like just like a glowing energy around him? Or do you actually think it is like forced lightning that's coalescing and running over his body and across the bodies of the people he's healing? certainly seems to me like it's actually meant to be force lightning. Otherwise, it'd be something more like an aura uh, or something that we see. But yeah, I, I took it as as literal lightning. Because Malady, she was talking about how she could feel a dark power within Skywalker. And when he does this, she's like, and I like how this is something they do from the, the, the letters point of view. A lot of the keywords are, are bolded. So in this case, it's feel the dark power, my lord. It is raw, but it could be trained, focused, honed. Were he turned to the Sith, his name alone would weld great power. His This attempt could kill him. Should we stop this? And, of course, Kray, it's going, no, we must see the limit of his power. And, of course, you know, he continues to start, you know, manipulating. Skywalker, hear me. Your hatred for me, for the Sith, is palatable. That's good. Hate can sustain you, make you stronger as it did me. Use it. Shut it. You killed my father. I want nothing from you. And I always get this kind of feeling like Cade, I don't know, maybe it was Rav, but somewhere along the line, he came away with a New Orleans accent. I don't know. Although I will say that there's there's uh, a, a kind of an interesting crossover with the real world coming as we move towards the next scene, though. We wind up in Nina Calixta's apartment um, where Morlish Veed is apparently meeting with Morticia Adams. Um, yes, yes. To discuss the whole issue of <laughs> Of what about uh, you know hiring Morgan Cord and how she's supposed to report to to Morlish Veed instead of to Nina this time? And granted, of course, I, I'm being facetious. That is supposed to be Nina Calixta, but there's this holy crap kind of thing. I mean, I guess I never thought of the Nina persona when her hair is up and she's in the Imperial uniform. I guess it never struck me I, the 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 pallor to her face. She is made to look like she is like walking death. Um, she and, and yeah, I don't know if this really. is supposed to be that this is makeup of some kind, or if when she becomes Morgan Court, it's makeup, or perhaps there's something that she does that changes her skin tone in some other way that's not makeup that helps make that uh, transition between the two different personas something that's more believable to others. But she appears very gaunt <laughs> and very dark. She she's gaunt. Yes. She's incredibly pale. And her hair, while I'm assuming it's meant to be mostly black, the way that they do the um, the highlights in the hair make it look like the highlights aren't so much highlights of light reflecting off of black hair as it is a lot of gray in her hair. Kind of like the way my hair is. My hair is very dark, but you can if you look closer, there's you know, gray streaking throughout it. It's not actual light reflecting off it. It's freaking gray. Um, and that just kind of knocked me back. It's, it was a – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's the most uncontrolled the appearance of Nina has been in terms of her usually being in a very severe uniform and severe hair pulled back and all that sort of thing. But if this is giving us a sense of who she is outside of the uniform, it seems as though she is, I don't know. I just, it's very hard to reconcile that with the Morgan Cord persona. And even with what we see her in, in the uniform, a lot of times, she really looks like Morticia freaking Adams. All I know is we better not find out in Legacy Volume 2 that she's the mother of Anya Solo, too, because that would just break my my 
continuity brain to pieces. Uh, and speaking of continuity, the other thing I like about this issue is a lot of time is passing. I mean, now we're at three nights later. We've had weeks kind of jump forward. And as we go ahead, it will start really jumping a couple weeks and stuff, which, you know, I mean, I, I've, at one point I kind of complained like, oh, there's all this potential for good stories. But a good jump in time, if they were to ever come back, would be a good you know, opportunity later. I mean, imagine if you were to write a book based off of Cade Skywalker set in his time in the temple. I mean, that would be interesting. There's a lot of time that's set here that we don't know exactly what happened during his quote unquote Sith training. So I, I, I'd be interested in that as well. But yeah, I, I get to that point when it comes to, to Calixi's uh, appearance that it's gotta be, this is just another character. But I, again, it gets to, I really would love to know what was driving her. Like, I, and I, I question like, how could they answer that in legacy volume two and tie it in some way, somehow, like, I don't know. That, of course, brings us to uh, the Sith Temple again, where Cade has uh, agreed basically to stay there for training. We learn a little bit about the fact that uh, Darth Neil had been a uh, a warlord, and a Nagai warlord prior to becoming a Sith, as opposed to being born as the Sith, which makes him someone with his own personal ambitions. How he wasn't meant to be the Emperor's hand, he was actually meant to be the Emperor's fist, uh, but Darth Talon was not yet ready. Uh, and his predecessor had died prematurely in the in the, the role of hand and whatnot. Uh, so we get this sense that there is a little bit more to Darth Nil, which hopefully we'll get to find out more about later. And then we get the scene with the big reveal, Darth Crate basically inviting Cade to dinner um, and them having a conversation about how Crate used to be a Jedi, respected the Jedi, despite the fact that they don't agree he doesn't agree with it, believing that they're blinded by the light side of the force, um, shows Cade that uh, he has Cole Skywalker's lightsaber in sort of a place of honor at this point. Um, we get to see Cade eat what appears to be a combination of, at one point he's eating what looks like grubs or worms that makes me want to puke, and the other side it looks like he's kind of eating a burrito. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he, he just chugs down whatever he's got, um, and finally we get that great moment where uh, – Cade's response is, you know, or, or Crate's response to a comment from Cade, uh, your hate does not surprise me. I myself knew hate when my father died, but I had to bury it for a long time. Being Jedi required me to do that. And everybody's like, wait, what? Yeah. Wait, wait you you're saying that you're once a Jedi? To which he responds, uh, don't look so amazed. The Sith were always born and reborn within the ranks of the Jedi. Like you, my father was a Jedi and he trained me in their ways. I grew in understanding and power and made myself into Darth Crate. But I was born... Bum, 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 as he takes his helmet off and nobody recognizes him except by the tattoos. But I was born Asherod Het. Bum, 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 thereby explaining why we covered Outlander recently. Bum, bum, bum. And that was something, I know some people had guessed that on forums and whatnot, but Not I found that to be a, a heck of a, a cool <laughs> reveal to make this a character that we have met before. He wasn't just a Sith that came out of nowhere. And, and it's not even a character that we knew before as a villain. We knew him before as this very unusual hero, the son of Sharad Het, introduced in Outlander, being trained within the pages of Republic. Um, I can remember uh, clearly the, the incident in which we see Asherod Het fighting alongside Anakin Skywalker with his ma and Asherod Het has his mask off. And there's this, this whole concept of uh, Anakin explaining why he hates the Tusken Raiders so much and what happened to his mother and what, and what he did as far as slaughtering the others and that gives Asherod insight into Anakin Skywalker that no other Jedi has, which ironically is mentioned a little bit later in this, in this particular story arc as a moment in which Krayt could have stopped 
the rise of the empire and the fall of the republic. He could have stopped Darth Vader if only he had simply reported to the Jedi Council about what Anakin had confessed to him. And instead, yep. no, he didn't. And that's awesome. I love that connection. Though I find myself incredibly frustrated now by the fact that we are looking back and relying on events in the Clone Wars comic series for Chuck and for Asherod Het and his character development when that whole era has been thrown into such chaos with no answers in sight by the Clone Wars cartoon series. Um, it's part of why, as much as I would be okay with the idea in many ways of the Clone Wars cartoon series um, uh, taking precedence and the other stuff kind of fading into the background, you need at least some elements of the previous, previously existing Clone Wars continuity pre-cartoon to make some of this later stuff make sense. It, the Clone Wars era, as much as it was cut off from everything else for the longest time when Bantam had the Star Wars license, as soon as Lucas said you can start exploring it, they didn't just explore it in that era. They explored it and connected it to other things beyond that era like this, which makes at least some of those pieces necessary. And I guess you could have said at one point that... It's the original Clone Wars stuff that is necessary for the rest of the EU, not the cartoon series. But as soon as they brought Abeloth into the picture and the ones into the picture, all of a sudden now you need both continuities, the cartoon and the comic slash novels, etc. before 2008, to make all this stuff in the broader EU, at least quite a bit of it, now make sense um, because of how they tie together. It is incredibly frustrating to look at this story and have that nagging in the back of my mind as something mm -hmm. that is a broken or otherwise uh, a shattered piece of continuity that, you know, it's going to take a Cade Skywalker to be able to use the dark side and pull back together. Sadly, mm -hmm. no such individual exists. It's probably going to remain broken. Yeah. Yeah, it, when we get... 15 was one of my favorite episodes, but I think 16... It's probably one of my standout issues. Like of all issues, I love the cover. It's got a Obi-Wan on it. You know, we'll talk about covers here at the end of the episode. But when I saw that, I was ecstatic because we're talking about an era that said 140 years in the future, you know, and here you've got Ben Kenobi on Tatooine and you're like, oh, you know, obviously it's going to be a flashback story. And so I, I immediately started to get really excited knowing that going into it. Uh, but, you know, that scene where you had talked about, uh, Great, you know, it gets back to literally it's a few pages into episode 16, issue 16, and he's talking to uh, Cade. Cade doesn't know Het. He's like, am I supposed to know that name? No, much has been lost from that dark time, you know, and he continues on and he says about how he's been in stasis. What you had said in the last days of the Republic, like all the Jedi, I was a general in the Clone Wars. I even served with the sire of your line, Anakin Skywalker. I discovered truths about him that had they been known, would have gotten Skywalker cast out of the Order. Instead, I kept silent, leaving it to his conscience to atone. A mistake, as it turned out. How much blood and pain could I have been avoided? And I just, I love the fact that, you know, he goes on and he talks about Kenobi, and then it goes into the flashback parts. But this also has been picked up in, I believe, the life and legend of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, they talk about this from Ben's point of view there, and how the battle goes down between Het and Kenobi. And I, I just, I thought it was cool that there's these tie-in moments, you know. So the issue actually starts with Morgan Cord meeting with Veed, uh, making sure that he doesn't really see much of her face, which is good, you know, to make sure that he can't recognize her as uh, Nina. And she heads off, of course, to hunt down Cade on behalf of the Imperials as opposed to the Sith. Uh, we also briefly get to see 
as uh, Jiraiya. Well, did you notice something weird about that, though? I mean, I was just thinking about this. The last issue, we saw him sleeping with Naya, and now he's all alone and Cord shows up. Like, wouldn't that kind of like set off a lot? Like, where's Naya? <laughs> I mean, unless this happens to be like the next night or a night later or something like that or something. I mean, yeah, but it's it set literally right night. before before we continue the conversation well, between Crate and them. So it's like Well and the uh. other part the other part must have been a little bit earlier, perhaps. Um suffice to say we go from there to seeing uh Delia and Jariah meeting up at Jules with Key and Chak, uh, who want their freaking ship back, and Morrigan shows up to meet with them, basically revealing herself um as the one with the plan to be able to save Cade. And when they are not sure, you know, what is it that, that would be her goal in doing so, because they know her as an Imperial agent, she reveals, you know, I'm his mother, and proves it with the little hologram that we saw before of her with the baby and Cole. Um, and Which they, gives Chak a moment there to, you know, serve relevance, because mm -hmm. Sin goes fake, he goes, maybe not, I used to trade with the Jedi back then, I remember when Cole Skywalker first brought his son to the Temple on Ossus, that's them. Right, so they make their plans, um... And part of this is going to require, you know, them, them aside from just being able to get to Cade, they want to make sure that they get back the Grinning Liar for Key and Shaq somehow. Um, they want to make sure that in the process of all of this, um, the Minot gets briefly transferred over to Shaq and Key because they need it to be under somebody else's registration, so it's not going to be nailed for being Cade ship and that sort of thing. I mean, she's really the one who sets up all the details of this intricate plan. The others are more like uh, the gung-ho, they'll just go in and risk their lives and possibly get themselves killed if they're going to do anything at all. Morrigan is the one who, as an Imperial agent, lays out the specifics of how this is going to work and lays out a much better plan. Um, but that's what brings us in for the scene you were talking about at the Sith Temple, where uh, Asherod slash Crate explains things to Cade. And this becomes what amounts to sort of a half-flashback issue where we learned that after Order 66... Well, first off, we learned how Asherod managed to save himself during Order 66. He was away from... His troops, when the order came down, he killed the troopers when he came to them, uh, minus one just long enough to learn what had happened, and that mm -hmm. as the Jedi were being wiped out, he returned to Tatooine and essentially took up his father's place as a Tuscan leader. Um, and great fighting. art, too, on these panels. I loved them. Yeah, with these really creepy-looking banthas. Um, but as they get close during their raiding and whatnot to the Lars Moisture Farm, Obi-Wan shows up, with the excuse being that he's there because he's heard of what Asherat is doing, as opposed to him being there to protect Luke. Um, I think that was a nice cover. I mean, yeah, so, you know, he's what basically... brings you to these trackless wastes? You do, Master Het. And he basically argues, you know, that this is not a Jedi-like thing to do, to which Asherat says, you know, the Jedi are gone, you know, and these are my people, these are the Tuscans. I need to protect them, etc., etc. Uh, basically what his father would have said, you know, early on when we saw it in Outlander, and these two engage in a... Fierce lightsaber duel, much of which is done without any kind of dialogue except for huffs and oomphs and the sounds of them, you know, exerting themselves, until Obi-Wan is able to not only cut off one of Asherod's arms, which plays a role well, in some things later. I but wanted also, to ask you about that because yeah. I thought it was he force pushed it off. Yeah, it looks, see, it like, lo it looks <laughs> like that. Because, okay, you go from them fighting, and wow, it's starting to rain outside. I'm kind of weird looking at pictures of a desert when it's a monsoon <laughs> outside. Uh, but Obi-Wan kind of has that gr that growling, weird look on his face where his chin does kind of the Jay Leno thing. And then, <laughs> yeah, instead of 
I mean, I guess it's, it almost has to be a slice, doesn't it? I mean, is a force push powerful enough to literally rip someone's arm off and send it flying? I mean, I know Obi-Wan's supposed to be strong, but holy crap, if that's what that is. But it's That's what I thought it was. Like, I thought he, it looks like he takes his left hand, shoves forward, which blasts the arm off at the elbow, and then he takes the same hand and coming back with that, he does a force pull on a Sherrod Het's left hand, pulling the saber from it, knocking him forward, which right. I would assume is the moment he's now on his knees and then he removes the the uh, mask, which if you know anything about Tuscans, you know if you've been dismasked or if you lose an arm, can't hold a Gaddafi, Gaddafi, Gaffery, whatever we're calling him anymore, you can't be a Tuscan anymore. So he disgraces him in front of that. So I, I it was one of those things when it happened, it, it made me stop and I kept looking at that scene. It's like, wow, that is mm-hmm. a powerful moment. Which, but there which is a scene you, where wait, that, that doesn't that make you wonder though. Why there wasn't more carnage? Because in Revenge of the Sith, we had that moment, I call it the patty cake moment, where <laughs> uh, Obi-Wan and Anakin both try to force push each other, and their hands are like right near touching, like they're about to play patty cake, and they're both, you know, pushing on each other until finally it just kind of breaks, and they both go flying off, and Anakin slams into the control panel. Shouldn't they have, like, broken bones at that point? I mean, if, if a force push from Obi-Wan is strong enough to blow your freaking arm off, there should be something well, a little bit more to that. And as he's pulling the other lightsaber, though, the sleeve on Ashrod Het's, you know, arm that he just lost is on fire. So, I mean, maybe it is, but if it is, it, wait, is wait, it's, it's happened fire? so... Well, Where's it looks it on... like it's on fire. No, it's, right? it's, not, it's, it's just in, it's in tatters. I don't... Oh, no, you're talking about the sleeve, no, the... This, what's left of his arm. Yeah, the sleeve yeah, itself the, looks yeah, like it's just in tatters. Yeah, on fire. But yeah, it looks like that arm is... It looks like it's on fire. Uh, so, I mean, maybe he's taking that uh, right arm and he he's sliced across and is blocking the left hand. And maybe that's what he did. And then he forced shoved the other hand away. I mean, it, it's a little vague at that one moment. <laughs> right. And then, of course, you know, he's knocked down. And, and this would be a perfect moment for Obi-Wan to say something like, you should be lucky. I only took one of your arms. I've taken an arm and two legs from the last person to screw with me. Um but instead, yeah, it's funny though how Kenobi has these confrontations, disables the Jedi, and then the Jedi wanders off and becomes a Sith. Yeah, pretty much. Um, this says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to your word. You give your word that you will leave. It's not like he can stay with the Tuscans anyway. Um, may the Force be with you, Asherod Het. And it's only later that uh, Het realizes that that's where uh, Luke was, the son of Anakin. But it's interesting that again, you could make the argument that this is something where Obi, just as Asherod Het to a degree is to blame for not stopping Vader, as Obi-Wan could be said to be to blame for not stopping Vader um, uh, when they see the opportunity. Here, Obi-Wan is also, in a sense, to blame for not stopping the rise of Krayt. Um, So you could argue that there are at least a couple of Jedi purges that are on Obi-Wan Kenobi's head at this point because of the way they built him into Asherod's story as he becomes Krayt. Yeah, Kenobi used to have a history of killing Sith, and now we're just finding out all he's good at is just lopping parts off of him. Yeah, he's he's sort of like, he's the Sith creator. He's like the midwife for Sith, and I'm not sure if that's something that that he should like to be known for. I mean, granted, obviously, he he doesn't know it. I'm wondering if at some point, while his spirit is in the Force, you you hear this. You know how you have the the moment in Episode 2 where Anakin kills the Tuscans, and you hear Qui-Gon's voice, Anakin, no! I'm wondering if at some point... um, uh, whenever this is revealed to Cade, if somewhere in the Force, uh, uh, just outside of Cade's hearing, you hear Obi-Wan say, Doth Crate Do! Or something, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, right out of the last issue when he pulled off the helmet. <laughs> it can't be. That's impossible. Anyway, um, so we've, we see that revelation in flashback. 
Uh, Talon gets ticked off at Cade's attitude toward Crate. Force pushes him, and he slams her back so hard that she is injured on top of other injuries she already has, presumably from sparring with Darth Nil. And uh, we learn a little bit more about the, 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 the nature of Cade's ability. He says, I got this crazy healing ability. I can see the weak points in you like little broken red lines. Shatter points, right? I can see where you got wounded recently. Someone smack you around during a sparring session? Bet it was nil. I could heal that hurt. Pour the force into the place where the red lines intersect. Or, and here's a new idea, maybe I could explode that point. Kill you. Interesting idea. Should we try it? And that gives him the moment in which, basically, Crate, again, in testing his ability, forces him... Instead of killing Talon, um, to use his power um, to save Talon. Basically says, you know, uh, the anger runs deep in you. The Jedi would have tried to train it out of you. I can show you how to use it. Are you ready to learn? And he says, you know, maybe I am. Maybe I always have been, or maybe I've always been. And in that moment, Kraid frees him from his bonds. He's, he saves Talon. And then we get that the, the great moment here of sort of the, uh, yes, my father's destiny is my own type of thing from Dark Empire, where Kraid says, the way of the Jedi failed you as it failed me. The way of the Sith can show you how to make use of all that you are, if you wish it. To which Cade simply replies, I do wish it. Teach me the ways of the Sith, master. Which is very much, it, it, at, at, on one hand, it totally fits with the idea of him bowing and being able to put himself under the control of Crate to learn Sith ways, whether he's meaning to entirely or not. But at the same time, it has that weird feeling to me of the, the moment in Revenge of the Sith that feels so awkward without the Stover novelization, where it's, what have I done? And Anakin drops to his knees, and, and it looks like he's, you know, on drugs. I will do anything you ask. Yes, <laughs> my master. I mean, he really does look like in the midst of that battle, as he runs in, I mean, granted he's frantic and granted he's sweating when he confronts Mace and says he must stand trial and everything, but it's as if as soon as Mace Windu dies, someone releases a vial of cocaine or something, um, or oxy, no, something more like oxycodone to numb his senses into Anakin, because the rest of his performance in that scene is so clumsy. And the calling in master is so clumsy, along with the, henceforth you should be known as Darth, I'm going to pull a name out of my ass, Vida and claim that it came from the Sith voices listening to me. Um, it's like, what? Henceforth, he'll be known as Darth Vader. What does that mean? Why are you calling me Vader? And he's just like, thank you. I appreciate that. I don't know. There, there's always been something very clumsy about that scene. And usually yeah. in the comics and novels, a similar scene plays out so much better. In this case, it does play out so much better. But just the whole, teach me the ways of the Sith. Master, after that ellipsis, Give me just that little inkling and that little reminder, uh, possibly a purposeful one, back to that scene of Revenge of the Sith, and it felt just a little bit clumsier than it probably would have been if he had said, teach you the ways of the Sith, and not said master. I, I know it probably needs to be there, but it just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a little bothersome to me. And we end the issue yeah, like setting it. up, um, uh, again, sort of a reminder, like in the first issue of this arc, oh, hey, by the way, Wolf and Kirk and Shado, they're all still out there. Um, yeah. Where we find that it's Joker Squad that's been taken by Darth Strife to Osis to hunt down um, any possible Jedi that are there based on reports and such. Um, and there's that sort of sense that while all this stuff is going on with Cade, while they're worried about Cade and the vision that Wolf has had of Cade turning Sith, they got problems of their own. Because Strife is there 
uh, trying to hunt down any Jedi remaining on that planet, which may be a good place to split our episodes here. Yes. All troops report all back quiet, Lord Strife. There are no Jedi on Arsus. Should we call off the search? No. Keep searching. I sense a whisper in the Force. Next issue, whispers become screams. Now, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We will continue on next issue with Claws of the Dragon. A good little fun ride as we're having so far. So much so, we just had to split this episode up. So remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review. They're also on Stitcher. We're now there as well. Uh, You can find links to both our episodes on Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or you can just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. No matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page, though. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Home base, headquarters, home one. Call it what you will. But not only can you comment to us about shows, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you have a comment about a past episode, whatever it is, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles that you can explore anything from the Star Wars expanded universe to zombies to you name it. It's out there. And if you don't like it, you got 12 months to exchange it, no questions asked. So in a digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. And, of course, you can find more about uh, the ongoing medical bill situation uh, through our Facebook page and the posts that I make there. I try to update everybody once a week. Uh, the PayPal address for that is Nathan at StarWarsFanWars.com if you're at all interested in helping out. Uh, you can also check out the Amazon.com store that my wife and I run just to sell off some old stuff out of our own collections. That is Amazon.com slash shop slash Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. And, of course, my Star Wars Timeline Gold has its own Facebook page as well, Facebook.com slash SW Timeline Gold. We just passed 1,000 followers as this page for this show is heading toward 1,500, so we got a little bit of catching up to do with that one. Be sure to visit. And you can also help us directly if you want to go to www.starwarsreport.com support. Follow the link and learn more there. Uh, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. Then don't quote us the odds that Caden Town will wind up hooking up and he'll catch a Sith STD. Or that Morgan Cord is out there personally making sure the next generation of Solos and Skywalkers comes from her womb. They call her Darth Herpes. (laughs) Darth Vortex. Like Darth Veltrex, but that's okay. (laughs) Next issue, Whispers Become Streams. Why the screams? No, it's, it's, it's like, no, 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 you don't understand. That's not actually whispers in the force. What you're hearing is part of Darth Maul's theme, the sha sha sha. That's all it is. I can see that.